Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, opening your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. And if you are here for the first time, uh, welcome you. Uh, as a lot of the text in 1 Timothy, this is a family discussion. So if you're here for the first time, uh, we're going to talk like we're having this discussion at a family dinner table. Uh, if you are a, a believer, this is important to know what the Bible requires of the leaders of God's people. If you are not a believer this morning, this is especially important for you because you probably have some preconceived ideas about the church and maybe some of the headlines that you've, you've read or the uh, distortions truly of what the role of pastor should be in, in a church. And so the example of an elder, the expectation the, the weight that is, that is put on one, uh, as you'll see this morning, we do not take God's order and structure and governance oversight in his church lightly. And so we're not going to shy away from a uh, passage that uh, might hit close to home in some ways, um, beginning with the elders and for the rest of the congregation. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to conclude chapter 5. Uh, and the the chapter, as I've said before, is the family chapter. Uh, we kind of look at brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith in the first two verses. Um, and then the next two major sections had to do with, with widows. And so we looked at benevolence and care for those who need care. And then he kind of lands on the, the, the elders, uh, those who rule well, being worthy of double honor. Um, so the the pattern of these last verses, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, the, end of the, the chapter ends with five commands and one principle. Uh, and this uh, principle uh, is, is really kind of the, the application, but the underlying principle underneath all these commands. So last week, we looked at the provisional command to provide for those, the ox who treads the grain, and um, care for the shepherds and teachers in, in a way that they can be devoted to the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Um, and so then it begins to flow logically out of that, that those who you honor, you're going to protect. And so this morning, um, I, I want to begin reading, but then kind of trace this outline through, and so hopefully it'll be helpful uh, as, we, as we get to our text. So in verse 19, he says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is protective. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is punitive, uh, those who are actually in sin. In the presence of God and, and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So do these things, but do not do them out of partiality. 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Patience is going to be a major theme as we work through this. 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul gets a little personal here. 24 and 25, here's the principle, the application. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also with good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So although this section addresses elders, I, like 
the uh, text last week, and like most of our texts, these rules, these principles can be applied to every believer. And they are helpful in the church, and so we're going to look at elders primarily, but we're also going to draw some application out for the rest of the body. And But before we go any further, uh, I want you to know why we're even covering these. Why does Paul even bring this up? These are not arbitrary expectations. We've said this before, but we cannot forget that these are the men who are tasked with being Christ's under-shepherds. And so if you're going to represent Christ to the people, if you're going to be an example in how to know him and love him and point people to him, you must have these things, and you must look like him, and you must look to him. So in our sermon today, we're going to begin and end with Christ, as all good sermons should do, but also our tasks, what we do in the church, what the Lord calls us to must begin with. In fact, it has to begin with Christ. We'll also end in pointing to him. So as we look at each one of these points, I want you to think about our Savior in each one of these. Number one, when we look at the protective element, why do elders need protecting? Because there are going to be baseless charges. There are going to be petty accusations. There are going to be false witnesses. How do we know this? Because that's what they did to our Savior. The world hates the gospel of truth. And so what did they do to the one who never spoke a lie in his life? They created lies, hoping to undermine him, hoping to discredit him, hoping to make a fool of him, a laughingstock. But he was innocent to all of their accusations. So going into our text, elders are not exempt from this. Christ also who though sinless, was punished for our sin. If elders sin, like any other member, it needs to be addressed and corrected. And public sins need to be punished publicly. There was none more public than dying on a cross. But he who was without sin knew no sin. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we think about correction for sin, it should always remind us that our sin is ultimately not corrected, even if temporarily we have to be punished so that we learn a lesson. Praise God, in Christ, we will not be punished eternally. Christ, who showed no prejudgment or no partiality. We are incapable of impartiality. We can't help it. We carry it around with us. But there was one who knew the hearts of everyone he spoke to. And he did not treat them based on prejudgments or exterior qualifications. He looked directly to the person and told them what they, they most needed, most desired, and most feared. While we might be hasty in judgment and laying on hands too quickly, giving responsibility too quickly, Christ was pure and timely when he appointed his apostles. In his perfect timing, he trained them and he sent them out that his church would be planted. That they would be the foundation built on the cornerstone. That a church would be built up out of the apostles and the prophets. 
Christ, whose first miracle was turning water into wine. The same wine that Paul tells Timothy to drink a little of because of your frequent ailments. But the final thing he tasted on his lips was sour wine, meant to make him more uncomfortable in his distress on the cross. Christ, who knows the seen and the unseen, the good works and the sins, he discerns them all, while we must apply wisdom and patience to know what is truly good fruit, what sins are obvious and what sins are going to follow along later? What, what good works will truly bring to fruition? And you know, what are just masking evil works? Our Savior knows them all. Before his presence, there is none who can hide. There is nothing that goes unseen before him. And so everything we do, as we will look at later, is coram Deo, before the face of God. And he... And only he is the one to judge all of these deeds, good or evil. So these matter for elders, these matter for the church, because it is him we serve. It is him who went before us. We represent him. Elders before the face of the congregation and the congregation before the face of the world. And so we cannot separate what we do from who we do it for and why we do it. We cannot separate what we do from who we do it for and why we do it. And so especially, speaking from experience, for elders, whether we like it or not, people are going to follow our lead. People are going to imitate our speech and our behavior. So we better... Pay close attention to how we carry ourselves, and we better be looking to our Savior and not thinking too highly of ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We are always before you. There is nothing that escapes your sight. You are the Lord over all creation. Yet in a unique way, there is a throne of grace that the angels of glory encircle and your people, when they pray, get to approach through your son, our mediator. Lord, we pray that you minister to your people this morning, that your spirit remind us of the teachings of Christ, that you convict us of sin, that you encourage us to righteousness. Also, Lord, that you put to shame anyone here this morning trusting in themselves. That the unseen sins that they think they can hide, that you would bubble them to the surface that they cannot escape. Lord, make the believer miserable in our sin that we might repent and turn to you in joy. Make the unbeliever miserable in their sin, that they may cry out to you for mercy and receive joy and life everlasting. Pray that your spirit would teach us and guide us according to your word, that we might glorify you in everything that is said and prayed and sung and discussed here this morning. To the praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, verse 19. 
The first command here, do not admit a charge against an elder. Do not admit, this word could also mean entertain or receive. Don't let it go any further than it needs to. This is a protection from an elder, for an elder. If there are claims against an elder, they must be substantiated. And so, um, why, you may ask? Unfortunately, there are many baseless and many more petty claims given against elders. I have heard many, um, and it comes with the territory. Some have some, some, some basis to them, and we as elders should examine ourselves when these things come in. Let me give you a few examples. Um, I will not name names, but these are all uh, members of this congregation, no longer members of this congregation. Um, one woman accused me of showing partiality because when my nephew was born, I held him more than I held her son. This is true. So, okay. Um, another one sat down, uh, brought her and her husband in the room and said, I need to stop preaching at her every week that um, I am telling the church her business and um, that she should start speaking to someone else. Um, and her and her husband left in that order. Um, another woman told me that she, does not, that she did not hear Christ enough here, so she had to go somewhere where they preach Christ. George, George had the same look on his face that Jesse and I did. Also, someone told me that I preach grace too much and that I need to talk about sin more. There's, there's a pattern among those four. You'll, you'll figure it out later. Um, but this is especially true in our day. Because in our day, one accusation, one public defamation of your character could paint the picture for everyone in the future. I mean, we, we see this everywhere. We see pastors who do foolish things with very public ministries, and so the more public your ministry, every pastor has a public ministry. Right here, this is a public ministry. Me looking at all of you. But the more public your ministry, the more public your shame and scandal. So there needs to be a protection against uh, charges that are baseless. Except on the evidence of two or more witnesses. So the same Old Testament standard that is applied to every person in the uh, the. Uh, covenant nation of Israel is to be applied toward elders. Like, this should be obvious. And not that elders don't take these, these charges seriously, but don't, don't launch an investigation just off the hearsay or the, the, the say-so of, of one person. And here's the problem for an elder, for a pastor. I don't get to turn it off. No. Every time I see one of you, I am Pastor Tim. I'll always be Pastor Tim. And, and I love it. I'm not complaining. Um, but there is a weight and a pressure that comes with that. I have to be careful about what I say and how I treat people. And every pastor has the same responsibility. I don't get to turn it off. But I think some of you think that you can. You don't get to turn it off either. If you are in Christ, you represent him everywhere you go. There is never not a time where you don't bear the image of the one who re redeemed you. Where you don't, where you're not indwelt with his spirit. 
And I think some of us think like, oh, well, you know, too bad for Pastor Tim. Once I get out of here, I can check out and I can do whatever I want for the rest of the week. How many of us live our lives that way? Well, I'm not a Christian over here, so I'm at, I'm at work now, or I'm at the ball game now, or I'm at the bar now, and so I can just do what I want. How many of us treat our Christianity like that? Elders don't have that luxury, but I don't think Christians should view their lives as, as they do either. Okay, so do not admit a charge except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so what do we do? Practical question. What do we do when a charge comes in against an elder? If there is a charge, we would want to corroborate it, number one. Otherwise, it doesn't go further. Because we're still assuming that the elders qualify according to chapter 3. We still assume he's above reproach. We still assume he's a husband of one wife. We still assume that he's able to teach and, and hospitable and manage his household well. We walk in knowing our, our hoping our brother is innocent until proven guilty. And so, those who we honor, we should also protect. But this is touchy. We have to take these things seriously. We can't take them lightly, but it must be substantiated. This is why elders must be men of discernment and wisdom. We must know the source of who is bringing this, this accusation and is there validity to it. And we have to examine these pretty frequently. When someone says, Brett did this, or Jesse did this, or Tim did this. So, that's the uh, protection. But what if it is substantiated? What if you can actually corroborate this, and it's, and it's addressed, and it continues? Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Those who persist in, in, in sin, assuming that the charges have been verified by multiple witnesses, Assuming that the sin is confronted privately and they still persist, we now have to follow Matthew 18. Again, for those who have a public ministry, Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that if your brother sins and you can address it with him one-on-one, I'm not going to read the whole whole text, thank you though. Um, If if your brother sins, you can address it one-on-one, do that. If he doesn't listen, take two or three more witnesses, is what we're doing here, and if he doesn't listen to the witnesses, Bring them before the church. Treat them like a Gentile, a tax collector, if he continues, if he persists. Again, if you have a public ministry, there's a higher standard, as we saw earlier in James, for those who teach. And so we must rebuke them publicly. There is a punitive protection for the congregation against an elder who is unrepentant. And because elders must be above reproach and lead by example, um, as Peter says, I do want to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Because we are entrusted by God with his flock until the Son of God returns back for his flock. Look at what Peter says here. This is 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So we're entrusted by God with his sheep, not our own, exercising oversight. This is the ruling that we looked at last week. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is the flock of God. 
These are his people. These are Christ's blood-bought sheep. And don't forget verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I am just here until the real shepherd shows up. Praise God, you don't, you're not stuck with me for eternity. I must hand the sheep back, hopefully in better condition than when they were presented to me in the first place. And if I persist in sin, if I put myself above my Savior who bought me and sought me as we sung earlier, I could sing in tenderness every day. Like we should never, just side note, we should never take lightly the love of God, the grace that brought us into this fold. And it's his fold. And it's a high task to be charged with teaching and protecting and overseeing this fold. And what we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your unfading crown of glory because you were faithful to me. That is the motivation of every pastor everywhere. It should be. And it is a shame when it's not. So if that pastor continues in sin, he absolutely needs to be rebuked publicly. Because he is no longer qualified for the office. And why does the pastor need to be rebuked publicly? I want you to look at Galatians chapter 2. This is the exact situation that we're talking about here. Because as soon as I do something, as soon as a pastor, as soon as a leader does something that is just a little bit off, other people are going to start imitating it. So follow me as long as I follow Christ. The moment I don't, do not follow me. Peter was guilty of this. And Paul confronts him to his face in front of everyone else. Paul is working this out before us in the church in Galatia. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Peter, Peter the first pope, being condemned by Paul. <laughs> Ex-cathedra, my, yeah. Um, but before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself Fearing the circumcision party. You can't fear the worst party ever. That is the most uncomfortable party ever. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Notice, Peter plays the hypocrite. Acts one way, then the circumcision party comes in. Um, I don't know how that's appealing. But then he begins to cater to them, and then he changes behavior, and the rest of the Jews change their behavior. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This is Mr. Faithful, as we saw in Acts a few weeks ago, the encourager. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Our conduct must be in step with the gospel. What type of hypocrite would I be or any pastor who says don't show partiality and I show partiality? Who says don't sin and then I sin? 
And then I am held responsible for the example that I set. This is why Paul called Peter out publicly. And you do that, Paul says to Timothy, so that the rest may stand in fear. Church discipline has a purifying effect in the body. You ever notice when you spank one child, the rest of the child, children start playing a lot more quietly? This is the same effect. You spank a pastor? What does everyone else do after that? And so likewise in the church, how do we apply this? Private sins are to be first addressed privately. And most members, and most members of the church do not know this, but most church discipline is solved that way. A sin is recognized, it is addressed privately, the, the person involved is convicted and they're contrite and they repent and praise God for those situations. Those are most church discipline situations. Praise God that that's most of them and I wish they were all like that. But in every case, we must consider the facts. We must consider the sources of those claims. We must address them directly, pray for repentance, and if so, praise the Lord, you've gained a brother. That's what Jesus tells us. But if not, if it continues, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so it requires public correction or, unfortunately, excommunication before the cancer spreads and infects the rest of the body. Pastors are not exempt. We are first in this. How many churches have we seen that grow in division and dysfunction because they avoid church discipline? Especially when it's a beloved pastor. And it has ripped many churches apart. This is how serious Paul takes it. Look at the next verse. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Whoa. You think this is important? He appeals to the very throne room of God. I like that there is one article here. In the presence of the God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. I wonder how many pastors remember that everything they do is before the throne of God. That the Lord is head over his church. I wonder how many pastors remember that we served Christ, not ourselves. And if you remember that everything is done before God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the angels are witnesses, if that doesn't put the fear of God into you, nothing will. And as Christians, do you remember that everything you do is done in the presence of God and our Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels? We live our entire lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. How often do you try to act like or forget that he's there? Think you can, how often do we think that we can just slide something by or get away with something and he won't see? It's foolish. Remember when I was a kid, I used to hide under our dining room table. No, no tablecloth or anything. And I would sit under there. And I remember th- these weird memories that, you, that, that stay in your mind. I remember thinking, because I can't see my mom's eyes, she can't see me. Like, that's, how, that's how, how silly we are. Even more so when we forget that everything is done in the presence of the true and living God. And his elect angels. This is, is an interesting addition. 
We as, we, we, as, we as Westerners don't really know how to explain angels, and Hallmark has ruined angels for everybody. Um, but angels are all throughout the scriptures. There are elect angels, and there are reprobate angels, just like there are elect men and women and reprobate men and women. But the elect angels are always present. They are messengers of God. They are ambassadors of the, the uh, true and living God. And notice where they stand in Matthew 25. I want to look quickly at Matthew 25, verse 31 and verse 41. When Jesus talks about his return and his judgment, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Day and night, holy, holy, holy. They are witnesses to the glory of God. And they will be the first witnesses to the restoration of all things. The elect angels will be with him on his glorious throne forever. Verse 41. So when he talks about separating, separating the sheep from the goats and all that, then he will say to those on his left, you want to be on the right, you don't want to be on the left. Depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not enough that our God condemns you. There are myriads of heavenly hosts as witnesses to our actions. It should kind of sober us up a little bit. And so it is in this vein that Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these rules without two things, prejudging and partiality. Okay, so what is God going to judge us on? What is God watching for when, when, when we, in our obedience, especially as leaders, prejudging, to judge first, judge a book by its cover. We all do this. He looks the part. He's good. She dresses the right way. Good. X, Y, or, or Z. We just base our perception of that person on what we see externally. But we can't do this. We can't side with, with, with one person ignoring their, their sins. Um, we can't just say, I'm going to pick their side because I like them better. We must be impartial. Isn't this exactly what we see today? Like, this is our public discourse. Hear the rumor, read the headline, that's what I'm going with. I never go beyond the face. I never go beyond the headline. Don't be guilty of this. Don't be caught up into this, 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 this foolishness that I'm going to judge on the first thing I hear. Proverbs tells us about that. The first man seems right until the man who's actually right comes along and disproves him. Don't be the one who, who believes the, 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 the first thing you see and the first thing you hear. We must have discernment. And we must train ourselves to see as God sees, not as man sees. Man judges on the external, on what is shallow, on what is easy to discern. But we have to judge according to the heart. And so we don't, we don't prejudge. We exercise righteous judgment. We also don't exercise partiality. We saw this um, in the last few weeks. We're looking at Acts 6, and we'll look at it again uh, on, on Wednesday night. This is the epitome of partiality. When the church is gathered in Jerusalem and there's a lot of widows, the widows who 
happen to be ethnically Jewish and speak Hebrew, and those who of the dispersion who speak Greek, one's getting fed and one's not. This is not just one big coincidence that only the ones who speak Hebrew are getting fed and the ones who speak Greek aren't. That is the epitome of partiality. We do not exercise partiality based on any exterior factor. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, the difference between partiality and prudence. Partiality says, because you are black or because you are white, because you are young or because you are old, because you are rich or because you are poor, I'm going to give you an advantage because I like your particular category more than the other. Or I feel guilty for your particular category more than the other. But prudence says, like we saw with the widows, those who are faithful, we honor. Those who show themselves worthy, those who love the Lord, those are the ones we show deference to. So, believers and elders should not jump to conclusions. So think about this. Um, When you're dealing with church discipline, it is a minefield. You don't want to do any jumping. You want to tread lightly. You want to be cautious. You want to be, you want to be patient. You want, to, you, you want to consider every step. And so many churches and so many pastors would save themselves tons of grief and heartache if they considered their steps and didn't just jump into or believe the uh, narrative they want, to, they, they want to believe. And we cannot show favoritism. We can't ignore the sins of others while fixating on some other sin. But sadly, what probably happens more often than we care to admit is the sins of elders are swept under a rug. That what happens in many churches, and I've seen this far too many times, is that the good old boys club circles the wagons, surrounds the elder who is being charged. I've seen this where elders have been charged by many witnesses and they are protected at all costs, they are excused at all costs, and nothing ever happens to them. There is no correction, there is no humility, they never learn, and no one wins in that case. I am all for protecting elders, I am one. But I am not for circling the wagons, and we shouldn't be either. And I know many of you in this room have been hurt by that very same situation. Where instead of caring for the flock, they cared for their own hides. There are many people who are hurt in those situations. So that is why when you select an elder, when you are an elder, when you put a leader over God's people, he must be intentional, he must be impartial, and he must be unwavering. I want to look at the principle in Exodus 18 here. Exodus chapter 18 We talk about this as a great pattern for leadership, a pattern for plurality. But look at what is most important. When Moses is exhausted because he's judging for the people night and day, he gets wise counsel from his father-in-law. I won't read the whole section, but just beginning in verse 21, Exodus 18, 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God. First and foremost, men must fear God before giving any responsibility, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Why? That seems out of place. He hates a bribe because of this very reason. Because if I can influence you, if I can pay you off, there is nothing I can't get you to do. And now I control you and you no longer 
can lead the people well. So if you get these men who fear the Lord, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and you place them over the people as, as chiefs of hundreds and fifties and tens, different men of different giftings, and then let them judge the people at all times, every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they desire themselves, so it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. This is the, the pattern of plurality that we looked at last week. And if you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Everyone benefits when men fear the Lord, are trustworthy, hate a bribe, and, and are faithful in their area, whether it's over five or 500. Everyone benefits. So this naturally flows into our next section, our, our next verse, our next command, verse 22. Where Paul says, do not be hasty in laying on of hands. So let's talk about the laying on of hands before the, the hasty part. This is not just a ceremonial action. This is a serious public affirmation. This is a confirming appointment to the one receiving and to the one who is presenting, the one who is laying on his hands. You are staking your very reputation on this man. This is very serious in, in, in that day, and so I want to show you the pattern, um, again, from the Old Testament. Uh, Numbers 27. And if you can't turn there quickly, it'll be on the, uh, the screen. Numbers 27. I, I want you to hear what is, what, is, what is implied when we talk about the laying on of hands. This is Moses and Joshua. Verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord... The God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the congregation. Moses is about to die now. He knows that the end of his ministry is coming up. Appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. The idea of a pastor over the sheep is not new to the New Testament. This is throughout the scriptures. This is the uh, pattern. There is a fold of God, a flock of God that needs to be cared for. And God entrusts faithful men with his sheep. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. This is not a guy who grows into the role. This is a guy who is ready for the role. And lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Inherent within the laying on of hands is an investment of authority. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire of him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. What is the result of that? The very end of Deuteronomy, when Moses is about to die, and he gets to see the promised land, chapter 34, verse 9. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of the wisdom for or because Moses had laid his hands on him. We don't take this lightly either. And Paul reminds Timothy of this several times. Don't forget the laying on of hands. Don't forget the, 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 the prophecy in which the elders have prophesied over you. This is a re reminder. You're not standing on your own. There are men who vouched for you. 
You are standing in shared authority. You are standing before God, and you will answer to him. And so whether you call this ordination, uh, putting something in order, typically within ordination there's an there's a inherent meaning of holy order. Installation, uh, when they used to put clerics in a stall, you were installed. Uh, you had your, your, your seat where you sat on the council. Um, or commissioning. Uh, commissioning is for uh, basically the same mission. You are shared authority with someone else. It doesn't necessarily matter what you call it, but it does matter what your understanding of what's going on when you lay on hands of another man. And so that's why he says, do not be hasty. Here is one way you avoid the sins of an elder before he becomes an elder. That is the number one way to avoid the sins of an elder. Don't install him. Don't ordain him. Don't commission him. This is why Paul says he must not be a recent convert. He's got to have a long track record. And I'll be honest, this is tempting when you need help. This is when I talk to pastors, this is probably the number one difficulty that they have. There are not enough willing and qualified men. Because there's a lot of willing men who are not qualified. And there's a lot of qualified men who are not willing. It is hard to find both. And pastors struggle with this. And so we need to hold up the qualifications. And we can't be too hasty, but we need help. And it is interesting to remember Timothy's 35, and he's, and, he's, and he's young. And there he's having to appoint other men, many of them older than, than, than him. And so for you guys in your 20s, you think, 35, you've got to put you out the pastor at 35. Here's the thing, and I love that we have so many young men here. Here's the thing about young men. Young men are like young fruit trees. They are green and full of potential. But you need a few years before you can bear fruit. And you need a few seasons before I trust you to feed my family. And so young men think that pastoral ministry, they sit in some theology classes and they read a lot of books. And they're like, it's just preaching and teaching. I get to preach and teach and talk theology all day. That's Bible college. That's not pastoral ministry. But can they handle the accusation? Can they handle the slander? Can they, te- can, they, can they handle those who you love and labor over and care for spitting in your face? Can you show discernment between a truthful accusation and a false one? Do you have enough wisdom to decide what is best for God's flock? Do you have the wisdom required? So that's why those questions must be asked because that's why Paul says, don't be hasty. Don't be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, because it goes by extension. If you act too quickly, if you put your hands on them too quickly, you could be guilty of their sins because you co-sign for them. This guy goes off the rails and does something crazy. You're like, Tim, you, you, you said we could trust him. So we have to be very careful who we affirm. This is not a light matter. But if you exercise diligence and patience, you will save yourself the headache. You will not be guilty and be a party to their sin, and you will keep yourself pure in the process. This is why we exercise caution. And then so moving on here, 23 just seems out of place. And many 
commentators try to explain this away, but I think this is a beautiful picture of why this is a, a personal letter and Paul's intention with, with Timothy, because he just finishes telling him, I know that you want to be above reproach. I know you're going to do this well. I know you want to be pure. And, and by the way, you can drink a little wine. Let, let, me, let me explain. As a pastor, also named Timothy, who began ministry at the same time Timothy did, I know how physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally draining it can be to pour yourself out. I know the expectations placed on you by everyone else. And Timothy is trying to remain pure. He is trying to remain above reproach. And I don't know if you remember who Timothy has in his congregation. Back in chapter 4, verse 3. Those who are following silly myths, deceitful spirits, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What are the chances that there's someone in the congregation, there's a party in the congregation who's like, you can't drink at all. And so Timothy has got to drink this, this poor water, and many people who drank the water in cities got sick. And so Paul's saying, drink a little wine. Not only does this, uh, we looked at this in, in the first week, but Timothy's got a lot of ailments. He's kind, he's kind of a weakly constituted man, um, and uh, W-E-A-K, not E-E-K. Um, but wine was one of those few medicinal remedies. The water wasn't good. He needs a little aid to digest his food, to heal, to relax. He needs to be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, all puns intended. But this is a fine balance. So Paul says, no longer drink only water. That water will kill you. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Um, Jesus made wine. Wine's a good thing. A little wine is good for those who labor hard, but much wine disqualifies you. So you do have to be careful. This is not a license to drown your sorrows or or to engage in self-indulgence. I know pastors who've adopted the Jimmy Buffett model that it's always five o'clock somewhere and that they they, they think because we're reformed, we we need to be drinking at all times. That is foolish. That is a complete misuse. You've met these people. This is a, this is a complete misuse of the text. Um, I, I like the, the caution in Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 draws on both sides of this and I think does it well. Certainly appropriate um, when the words of King Lemuel speaking to a ruler, right after watching out for, for women, verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget uh, what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. If you're given, as elders, if you're given the task to rule, don't you dare impair your judgment. Don't you dare let alcohol or anything else pervert justice. Don't you dare be guilty of oppressing or being a partial to someone because you have been a little too free with your with your freedom but the writer goes on give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress let him drink and forget their poverty let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more there's a place for that not to the place of being intoxicated not to the place of being out of your self-control but there is a place to take the edge off. And sometimes the pastor is the afflicted one. 
the one who is just burdened. And, and that is okay for a time. Not when you are deciding things. Not when you are responsible for preaching and, and teaching. Um, and so the Lord has given us these things. Jesus created wine, or made wine, he created wine, and he gave us wine. Uh, so I want to tie like the last two, two parts together. Uh, just like good wine needs time to ferment and age, so do young men. You don't want to pull it out of the vat too quickly. Uh, character comes over time. There are, nuance, there are nuances in a 10-year port that you can't get in a two-year port. If you don't understand that, that's fine. But young men, that's what we're looking for. Do you have those nuances and characteristics of someone who has had the time to develop? This is the good wine. And so this running theme of patience continues. Uh, I'm going to end here in our application, verses 24 and 25. Land here in our application. I'm not ending yet. This, uh, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Jumping um, back into this logical flow, there, this is one principle with two parallel applications in verse 24 and verse 25. Here's the principle. Patience and prudence are friends. And if you wait long enough, the truth will be revealed. Patience and prudence are friends, and if you wait long enough, the truth will be revealed. So you can't be prudent in an instant. It requires patience. So everyone, the sins of some people are conspicuous, obvious. There are some sins that everyone can spot. Like anyone can do that. So you need to be observant and discerning. Um, but the patient and prudent will see what is not immediately visible. You know, anyone can spot the, the public sins. Like, if, if, if your life is a train wreck, like anyone can spot that. And you should be weary of that in members and certainly for leaders. But it takes some, some discernment to look at the ones that come along later. And this can only come with, with age. So, um... Paul uses a picture here that really isn't evident in the English, but he uses going before and, um, and following after. The first one, where he says, uh, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. Here's the picture. Your sins are running out front. It's like, um, it's like, a, it's like a horse-drawn carriage. You ever see those, those, those old Western movies where the horse is just running out of control and, and the guy behind them is just, is just holding on for, for dear life? That is the, the sins of this person. They are going out before you and they're leading you straight to judgment, straight off a cliff. You are bouncing around on this, on, on this, this stagecoach and you can't miss that one. But it's not always that obvious. Here's the next one. But the sins of others, literally here, follow after. Some of you will follow your, your sins, and that's easy. But there are others of you who your sins follow after, and you got to wait. It's kind of like a shadow. Okay, I, I, I see the person, but what's actually following behind? Or a little hungry puppy, or the guy who walks confidently out of the uh, men's room and the toilet paper is stuck to his foot. And like, looks confident, looks great, but if you wait long enough, there it is. I saw that one. It's, it, it's trailing behind you. People always put their best foot forward, but time will bear you out. And so this is like the iceberg principle. You know, that when you see the tip of an iceberg outside of the water, 90% of who people are are above the surface, excuse me, below the surface. 
And if you don't take time to look below the surface, if you don't take time to see what's there, you're going to titanic your way right into that iceberg. But how many of us don't go beyond the surface? How many of us judge, prejudge by what we see? Oh, he looks good, sounds good. This guy's got all the right answers. Let's put him in leadership. But there's way more beneath the surface that if you have time and you have discernment, you can identify. And so when we look at leaders, someone comes in and we have these discussions as elders like, hey, this, this guy's pretty sharp or, you know, I see the way that... Um, she cares for her family, and we see good, good things, and uh, you know, maybe there'll be a role here or there, and we'll have to remind each other, we'll see. We'll see. We'll give it time. Because here's where patience and prudence come together. If this is truly who you are, if you are faithful, if you are wise, if you are, are, are gifted, you'll be as gifted six months from now and a year from now as you are, and probably more. But we get to discern that, and we get to look over time. And so the second application is just like it. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Jesus told us that everything's in the darkness is going to come to the light eventually. You can't hold that beach ball underwater water forever. This is precisely why an elder shouldn't prejudge or be hasty. Pastoral ministry is not checkers, it is chess. You must be watching and thinking moves ahead, and you must see what is, is coming, not always just what, what's right in front of you, but in both cases, true sins and good works are evidence over time, proving that it is good and healthy for leaders and for church members to be patient and to not act quickly. So I want to conclude, um, kind of bringing it all together in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you can, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 for me. This is not on the screen, so if um, you're new to your Bible, just go a few books to the right. Go past Titus and Philemon and Hebrews and James, and now you'll be in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to read verses 13 through 19. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. The therefore is important. What came before this? The great salvation and living hope that we have in Christ. So notice, any action, any sober-mindedness, any faithfulness comes out of our salvation. Remember, I said we're going to begin with Christ, we're going to end with Christ. So don't hear all this stuff and say, okay, I want to be an elder one day, or this is what I need to look to for the elders, and it's just a, a checklist. It must come out of the gospel. It must come out of our salvation. It must be with a full wonder and joy in the grace of God who revealed Christ to you, who you will see one day. And so coming out of our salvation, we praise God for that great salvation. Now that you have been saved, as obedient children, this is who you are, you've been adopted, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are to walk like new men, like new women, like new creatures, not like the former ignorant ways that show partiality and, and, and hastiness, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. This begins with those who set the example for the rest of the body. Holy in all your conduct. Holy. Be set apart. Be different from the world. Don't do things as the world does them. Be an example to the flock. Be faithful in your actions. We desire to be obedient, not so that God will be pleased with us, but because God is pleased with us. Not so that we can be holy, but because he has made us holy. Through his righteousness. Through our salvation. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially. So if our father sees all and judges all and he is perfect and impartial, what should our judgments be like? If you call on him who is father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. There is an answer for our sin, for our partiality, for any distortion and mistreatment of the people of God, there is an answer. Now, thankfully, there are consequences even if there is not condemnation. We cannot eternally bear the, the, the weight of our sin any longer in Christ, but you better believe there are consequences. So if you were put in leadership, if you were given a responsibility in the church, in your home, in your, in your, your business, and you sin and you fail publicly... There are public consequences, as there should be, because our God does not show partiality. And so that is our encouragement. That is our challenge to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Remember, good leaders are those who first and foremost fear the Lord. We fear him because he has saved us, but he's holy. He has called us in grace and truth and mercy, but he's just and he's righteous. And we can't take our sins lightly. And we can't take the sins of our leaders lightly. And those works that will judge us on over time, they will, determine what, they, they will show what type of tree we are. And the same one who gives life to the apple tree to create apples gives life in Christ that we may bear good fruit. And we want to bear good fruit. Because he creates life in us out of his Righteousness, And here is what Peter appeals to. Okay, be obedient, fear the Lord. Why, how, what's your motivation? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been ransomed to a new life and we are to set an example. Not just for the sake of others, but we want to please the Lord. We want to be obedient. And as an elder, as a pastor, I have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account, as we looked at last week. And I want the fruits of my labors to be the faithfulness of those who I'm entrusted with. As Paul says, like, I want to present everyone mature. Why? Because I have been saved. Because I have been redeemed, I have been ransomed, Christ's blood paid for me. That is where my obedience comes from. Not any moral obligation to anyone else. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that bought his church. That sought the lost ones and brought them home into the flock. That unites us. 
and is the same blood that covers us and drives us in ministry. Because he, a lamb without blemish or spot, bought us, paid for us. We are called to love him because he first loved us. And our love for him, as Brett told us earlier in prayer, is how is shown in how we love one another. His challenge to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my lambs. My Savior died for me. Gave his life for me. How could I not love his flock? How could I mistreat his little lambs? And so if you are in Christ this morning, be encouraged. You may never be an elder. You may be an elder. But be faithful. Be obedient because of your salvation. Look to the blood of Christ. And you show how, see how he did not show partiality when he looked at you because if he did, he would have never chose you. How he was not hasty. There's many things we go through in our lives that, man, we wish we didn't have to go through. But then afterward, like, ah, I see what you're doing, Lord. In your timing, it is perfect, and you taught me everything I needed to know. You brought me through what I needed to be, be brought through. But if you're not in Christ this morning, if this is a family conversation and you're like, I don't know what any of this, this, this means, it's fascinating to hear you guys talk about this. This is how much Christ cares for his church. He wants worthy shepherds over his, his sheep. And he is willing to punish them publicly to bring shame upon their pride so that they may be corrected and the rest of the sheep be built up. That is how much he loves his sheep. And if you don't know him, that is a love you cannot understand. People can tell you about it. They can share it with you. But if you know that love, a Savior who is willing to take, his, take on flesh, walk among you, die for you, and then entrust the most faithful men he can find to care for you because he wants you built up in righteousness until he returns, that is a Savior you can trust. That is a Savior you can believe in. And that is the only one who can give you any hope. And if you have that hope, praise God. Let us be obedient. Let us be faithful and do everything unto him because he is a great Savior and we have a great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your grace and mercy toward us, uh, that you would seek a people for yourself, um, that without partiality, that you would in perfect election set aside a people to be holy as you are holy, that you would ensure it by taking on flesh and walking among us, that you would keep it by sealing us with your spirit, and Lord, continue to use us to protect your flock, to build her up. May none of us think we are above your, your judgment. Uh, may we fear you, not hold our sins too tightly, but may we cry out in repentance. Uh, may we accept discipline and correction from those who love us so uh, that your church would be a pure and unblemished bride at the day of your return. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.